You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Okay, now let me read to you um, today's scripture reading. And so if you have your Bibles with you, can I encourage you to open up to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through to 31. Let me read. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran, ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. These are the true words of the living God. Good morning, church. My name is Jacob, one of the elders in the first congregation. It's my privilege to open a new series for us this week. We're going to talk for the next six weeks on on encounters with Jesus, and I'm quite excited about this because I think every encounter with Jesus that we see in the Bible is a transformational encounter. And I think it's a chance for us to see how people were transformed, but also to experience some measure of that transformation in our lives. So today I'm going to be talking about Jesus and the rich. But before we do this, um, let's just uh, pray and uh, please join me. Lord, I just pray that you would speak to us, be with us, convict us. Lord, I pray that help us against strongholds that have roots that are deep, that the stronghold of the love of money or even the fear of not having money is something that is deceptive, something that our hearts can just deceive us on. But Lord, we pray that you would shine a light on it, that you would convict us. And even in my own life, as I preach, Lord, I pray that you would convict and work through me and work in me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Well, I'd like to start today with an old joke about socialism. 
So there were two men in a socialist country who were walking together, and one man says to the other, my friend, if you had two houses, would you give one to me? And the other man says, of course, why should I have while you do not? Then the man said, if you had two cars, would you give one to me? And again, the friend said, comrade, of course, I would give one to you. Then the man said, if you had two chickens, would you give one to me? And the second man said, oh, no, 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 no. I can't do that. Now the man was surprised. He said, what? Well, why can't you do that? And the second man said, well, because I have two chickens. <laughs> now, there's something in this joke that highlights how the practical reality of dealing with money and wealth is something that goes deep into our heart and can actually really challenge us. Jesus talks about money. 11 out of the 39 parables of Jesus involve money in some way or form and is something he used to actively confront people with. And our passage today with a man commonly known as the rich young ruler is a great example of that. Now, before we dive into that, you might be wondering, well, how relevant is this passage really for us? Most of us are not rulers, most of us are not necessarily rich, and many of us are not young. Is this more just a matter of evangelism? Is, are we just listening today to find ways to talk to the people living on Orchard Road or dining on gold-plated steaks that cost $1,000? I, I just can't understand how the gold actually affects the taste of it, but that's what people are buying, apparently. Well, in response to that, it's interesting to see that in this section of Mark, particularly in chapters 8 to 10, there are several times when Jesus is talking pointedly about wealth, but he's not talking to the merchants, the tax collectors, and the ultra-rich in some of those times. But the main focus of a lot of that teaching is his own disciples. Even in our passage today, a lot of the teaching happens actually after the rich young ruler leaves as he is talking to his disciples. Why is that? I think one reason for that is that you don't have to be rich to idolize the things that rich people do. Let me say that again, you don't have to be rich to idolize the things that rich people do. Especially now in modern times with technology and social media, it's important to see how much narratives about money can impact us, even if we don't have a lot of money. These narratives are in our face with more intensity and frequency than ever before. We're exposed to displays of wealth like most of us could never imagine growing up. You take someone like Mr. Beast on the slide behind me, one of the top earning YouTubers in the world, who made almost $82 million last year making videos about how much money he had and how he spends it. If the world is gonna talk so much about money, then we as a church need to as well. This is also important because the religious response to money has had pretty wide extremes. On one end, there's a view that money is inherently very bad and spiritual pursuits are the best thing you can do. So the best thing you can do is become a monk or a nun and just shun all material possessions. On the other extreme, you've got what some people have called the prosperity gospel, a teaching that broadly embraces wealth and God's blessing on our life as a response to our faith, or on, to our faith to, uh, in him. Now, to be clear, we do not teach that here. So just give me one sec. I want to put this up a little bit. Oh, here it is. There we go. That's a bit more comfortable. All right. But if either of these extremes is, is your impression of what Jesus says about money, I'd like to tell you that it's a little more nuanced than that. Actually, a lot more nuanced than that. 
Jesus does not say that wealth is inherently bad. There is much good that you can do with money. Many of the Old Testament patriarchs, like Abraham, and kings like David and Solomon, had a lot of wealth. Many people in the first century church were wealthy and were supporters of Paul and the apostles. But Jesus does caution that wealth holds great pitfalls. Why is this? One of these things is a clue, is something we see in the dominant culture, narrative of culture itself. That wealth is capable of giving us things that we crave very deeply. Security, satisfaction, and significance. And if something is capable of giving us all that, as well as the autonomy and freedom to be Lord of our own lives, the draw to worship and devote your life to it is not something to be underestimated. But the main thing about money that I'd like to bring across today is not so much that it is inherently bad, but that it is limited. And the main reason it's limited is it cannot give us a fourth S, that we need more than security, satisfaction, and significance and that is salvation. But Jesus will even show us that wealth is limited in those things that it does promise, and that there is a security, satisfaction, and significance to be found in him that makes anything we can find in this world pale in significance. So we're gonna look at this passage in two points. The limitedness of material riches, the lavishness of eternal riches. So first, the limitedness of material riches. So let's meet our man in the passage today. In Mark, it says he has great wealth. In Luke, it says he was a ruler. And in Matthew, we find out he was a young man. And so that's how we get the term rich young ruler. Now, according to the world's narrative, this man has everything he needs to be happy. Yet he seems to realize that there is something missing and money can't, something that money can't buy. And he has a sense, it seems, that Jesus can help him with that and he comes to seek him out. So let's look at the passage now, and if you have your Bibles open, it would be great if you could follow along from verse 17 onwards. So first, notice he runs up to Jesus and he kneels. This is a man who is earnest and respectful. He's not like the Pharisees or other leaders who treat Jesus with contempt. He recognizes that there's something about him that is important and is willing to give him honor. And then he asks his pressing question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is an interesting question. Again, the secular narrative around us would actually laugh at this and say, well, what are you talking about? This life is all we have. So let's just do our best to enjoy ourselves, enjoy our time here until we're gone. Why bother with anything else? But what if this life is not all there is? What if there is something more than this? What if there is a God that made you and has a purpose for you? What if this purpose is for so much more than the things that we have or are chasing right now? The rich young ruler seems to realize something of this and has certainly come to the right place to get the answer. But unfortunately, he comes with two big misconceptions that this encounter with Jesus is going to challenge. So let's look at what these are and how it connects to the limitedness of wealth. The first misconception is that he does not really understand who Jesus is. He calls him good teacher, and Jesus makes it a point to first call him out on that before answering the question. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now, why is he doing that? Is he just being needlessly pedantic? 
Well, no, he does that because it is vitally important to understand what comes next. This man is aspiring to be good, and he recognizes that Jesus is someone who seems to be good and embody that, but he is still operating under the flawed assumption that man is capable of being good, even good enough to earn their way into heaven. And here he thinks he has found a man who is going to help him down that path. But Jesus reminds him that no man is good because God is the definition of good and no one can live up to that. God is the ultimate objective standard of what is right and wrong because he is the only one worthy to set that standard. There is no man who can either set it or meet it. But the ruler is right in a way that he does not fully understand that Jesus actually is good because he is God in human form. The second misconception that he has is he approaches Jesus in the typical way that people approach any idol or anything that they feel can give them what they want. When we see something or someone that can give us what we want, we go and we ask, what can we do for you? What can we, or what can we do for us to get that? And this reminded me a bit of an intern that I interviewed once who, on the, who, who said he was willing to work 100 hours a week. I half wondered if he could do math properly because that's really a lot of hours. But his point was that he was willing to give himself and do whatever it takes to get this role which he saw was a step to where he wanted to go. Like most capable people, our rich young ruler's default question is what can I do to earn or be worthy of what I want? Name it and I'll do it. So Jesus starts by answering in a somewhat legalistic way that the man might have been expecting by listing out commandments from the law. And interestingly, he starts with the second half of the commandments, not the first, the ones that relate to people rather than God. He says, do not steal, do not kill, do not lie, do not commit adultery, honor your parents. Now the man seems pretty happy about this because he has aced the test. The man confidently says, I have kept all of these since I was young. And since he's saying this in front of a large crowd, there's no reason to believe that that's not actually the case. He might have been feeling pretty good about himself at this point. But now Jesus is about to show him just how far from the law he really is. He says, if you want to be good, if you really want to be good, if you want to be perfect, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. Now, what is Jesus doing here? He does not usually ask this, and he hasn't asked this of everyone that he's met. Why is he making it so difficult for this earnest young man? Well, what Jesus is showing him is the stark reality that even though he thinks he is good enough because he has kept all the commandments, he has in fact broken the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. This is also why it's so vital for Jesus to address that first misconception on who he actually is. Because when faced with the choice of Jesus, following Jesus, following God, or his own wealth, the fact that this man chose his wealth shows what was really God in his life. How would you answer in that situation? It's a challenge that we need to reckon with. In fact, how we answer that question actually depends very much on how we answer another question. And that question is, what in your life is the source of your security, satisfaction, and significance? One test of that is, what do you spend the most time thinking about? 
whatever that thing is will be the most non-negotiable thing in your life. And as we've seen, wealth sets itself up as something that can give us those things. And the more we have, the more likely it is that we have made it the source of those things. But it's not the only thing that can play that role. It could be an ability, it could be your fitness, it could be affirmation from things like the number of likes and attention you get on social media. The warning in this passage is primarily about wealth, but it can be much broader than that. When we look to any source other than God for the things that we crave, we risk making it something that we are willing to break the first commandment for. The man's face falls and the text says he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. After the man leaves, Jesus drives this point into his disciples. He says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say those famous words, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there have been some attempts to water this line down a bit. You may have heard a claim that there was a gate in Jerusalem called the needle's eye, and a camel could pass through, but only if it shed all its bags and it crawled on its knees. So the lesson is that if we can unburden ourselves of our love of riches and our need for riches, and if we can humble ourselves, it's difficult, but we can do it. The problem with that is there's no, really no such record of, some gate, of a gate like that. The apparent source of this idea is a Byzantine writer in the 11th century. And other than that, there's no, not much record that the early church believed anything like this. No. Jesus is more likely deliberately making an extreme example. He takes a picture of the biggest animal that they see around us, the camel, and the smallest hole that they can imagine, the eye of a needle. The emphasis is not that it's difficult, but that it's impossible. You see, there's something about riches that creates a certain blindness. And the way Jesus talks about it, it seems like there's almost an inevitability to it. Our sinful nature will grasp at anything that gives us autonomy from God and the chance for self-reliance, just like Adam and Eve did with the fruit in the garden. The desire to be Lord of our lives is in each and every one of us, and even a little bit of wealth tantalizingly holds out the prospect of that. And when we put our trust in it, we sin with the most foundational sin of making gods of something else, just like the man in our passage today. The great irony is that this wealth we choose to put our trust in instead of God may not even give us what it promises. There's an, there was an interesting article I read recently in the Wall Street Journal of a man named Dr. Glazer in New York. And along with two other therapists, they see up to 200 patients a week for mental health issues and substance abuse. The people they see are mainly fund managers, traders, and corporate lawyers. His fees are $700 for 45 minutes. So that should give you some indication of the kind of demand there is to see him, as well as the kind of people who are seeing him. But this was the part of the article that really struck me, and I've, I've put it on the slide behind me. It said, annual compensation for partners at private equity firms and hedge funds can run in the tens of millions of dollars. The money is often the problem. When financial chieftains are riding high, some use substances and sex to amplify the feeling, Glazer said. When their fortunes sour, they do the same to avoid it. Others turn to addiction to mask the reality that achieving their goals, like launching their own fund or making $100 million, 
can still leave them feeling empty. This man is not a Christian. He's just describing what he is seeing with the people who come to him. We are so prone to thinking in a way that says, I'll be happy if, fill in the blank for yourself. If I could afford the thing I've always wanted, if I could live in a bigger house, if I could get the respect of the people around me. I've definitely thought like that. What is it that you find yourself putting in that blank? I'd be willing to bet the people who see Dr. Glazer could have those things many times over. And yet, not only are they not happy, they seem to be mentally broken and grasping for anything they can to make themselves feel better, including drugs. Yet in spite of these examples, the lure of wealth still affects us. Maybe we think we'll be different. The disciples certainly seem to get how challenging this is. The text says they are exceedingly astonished. Commentators suggest that they, this may have even been particularly shocking in a culture where the wealthy and powerful were seen to have God's favor on their lives. Asking for such a tremendous sacrifice like this turns that completely on its head and is definitely not a seeker-friendly message. Who then can be saved, they cry out. But now, after taking them to the point of despair, Jesus is going to point them to where their hope really is. With man, this is impossible. But with God, but not with God. They don't see it yet, but this is why Jesus is here. You see, Jesus did what the rich young ruler couldn't do, and more. It's interesting to see that in this passage, he looked to this young man with love. And ultimately, Jesus showed that love for him and us in the most powerful way possible. He had immensely more wealth, glory, and honor than any man has ever had. And he set it all aside. He gave it all up in obedience to the Father to go to the cross for us. He suffered loss, shame, and injustice giving all he had, even his own life. And now, by grace through faith, his righteousness, a life we could not have lived, a life we had no chance of living up to, is imputed to us. We deserve judgment for how we have put our trust in anything other than God, but instead, we have redemption and eternal life in Jesus. It is not possible for us to give more than we have been given. What Jesus tells the rich young ruler is not actually different from anyone else. It's the same thing he has been saying all along. To follow him means to deny yourself and give yourself fully. And, and what many are turned off by in that statement, along with the rich young ruler, is because they likely do not see that giving all of us for all of him is not really a sacrifice. Not only does wealth as an, alter as an alternative not give us what we really need, salvation, but we're going to see that it's limited in truly giving us even the security, satisfaction, and significance, and life in fullness that we were made for. And that's my second point, the lavishness of eternal riches. Now, if you're familiar with the band Coldplay, they were in town recently, and I had the chance to go for one of the concerts. And one thing that was fascinating to see is while the band was playing, a lot of the people around me were actually... Experiencing, experiencing it through their phone rather than actually watching them directly. And in fact, he kept telling people to put the phones away, but they wouldn't do it, right? They just wanted to keep like, taking pictures and videoing him. And, and then at one point, Chris Martin, the lead singer, brought a, uh, a lady on stage with a partner, and he was going to play a song that they requested. And he was, 
He sat them down, he got on the piano, he started playing, and immediately the guy pulled out his phone and started videoing him, right, right next to him. And what Chris Martin did is he said, hey, he stopped playing, he said, brother, I'm right here. We're having a real connection. You don't need to experience me through the phone. Now, some of us who are older may feel like making fun of a generation that seems to want to record everything from concerts to food, to talking about what they did that day, but actually, I think it's an expression of something deeper we all feel. We have always been obsessed with capturing moments in paintings, photos, or videos, and I think one way to explain it is it is an existential struggle against the transient nature of everything that we experience. When we experience something good, it's so fleeting that we desperately try to capture the moment permanently in some way. There is something within us that yearns for the eternal, the permanent, and maybe these images and video are just a desperate attempt to create that. This desire for eternity is something that we are made with. And it's important to recognize that because it helps us to powerfully frame the contrast between how limited material riches are truly in giving us the things that we mentioned, security, satisfaction, and significance compared to Jesus. So let's look at each in turn. Security. Our need for it is one of the most basic needs we have. But how much wealth do we really need to be secure? John D. Rockefeller was America's first billionaire, and at one point, the richest man in the world. And he was asked once by a reporter how much money was enough, and he just calmly, calmly replied, just a little bit more. If being secure is your ultimate aim, then you will keep building and hoarding as much as you can. But there is so much that's out of our control. The bank you put your money in could fail. We could suffer a freak accident or illness. We could be like the rich fool that Jesus describes in another parable, who stored up much wealth in order to retire in comfort. But God says to him, you fool, tonight your soul will be demanded of you. And whose will all your wealth be? But Jesus shows a different way. Notice that when he asks the rich young ruler to follow him, he also says there will be treasure for him in heaven. This is similar to what he says in Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus completely reverses the narrative of the world that says, hoard as much as you can, and instead he says, there is something better than hoarding it. By giving it away, you will have a treasure that is not transient, but eternal. And like we saw, and, and, and in this, we are really just following his example. Like we saw, he gave all he had for the riches of bringing us back to God. And now we can do something similar to bring others into the kingdom. Now, I don't know what the treasure in heaven will look like exactly, but I like what Jim Elliott said about it. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to get what he cannot lose. We heard last week from Jacob Ung on the last part of Philippians chapter 4 on the riches we have in Christ. Paul thanks the Philippians for their giving and reminds them of why they can be generous, because they can trust that God will supply all their needs. We can give because we have a freedom of knowing that our security is not up to us, but there is a God who sees us and takes care of us. And if we truly believe that, it will impact both our view of what we need for security and how we think about giving. But next, satisfaction. 
in this, we see in the passage, you know, that Jesus says, our benefit is not just in heaven, but even right now. After the young ruler leaves and Jesus is talking to his disciples, Peter says, well, what about us? We have left everything to follow you. Jesus replies that no one who has left home or family or possessions for his sake of the gospel will lack that. And in fact, will get that back hundredfold. One of the deepest longings that we have is to belong and find community. And there are lots of things that give you transient pleasure in the world, but one of the most fulfilling things you can have really is relationship and love. And there's a strong sense that when he describes this hundredfold blessing that he is talking about the church and the body of Christ that we come into. The first century church was certainly a picture of this. In the book of Acts, it said that they had all things in common and they shared all they had with anyone who needed them. In other words, they truly treated each other as family. They were a lot more socialist, actually, than the people in my opening joke. How is something so radical possible? They could do this because they saw themselves connected in a profound way, in Christ, and they saw the wealth that they had as something that ultimately was God's blessing, not just on them, but on the community. We are so drawn to invest our things that will have a return now, but will ultimately disappear. But if we invest in relationships, in the body of Christ, we are investing in something that will last for eternity. But even more than that, we have the satisfaction of being with God through Christ. If we think relationships with people are satisfying and fulfilling, how much more with the God of the universe? And we get a hint, even a little hint of this from Paul in, second, in 1 Corinthians 2 on how we can't even imagine what that would be like, where he says, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And finally, significance. You know, Taylor Swift is in town, and I, I hear there's a number of Swifties here. My daughter wanted me to take a quick poll. There's people who like uh, Taylor Swift. Anyone? Okay, there's some, yeah. So my daughter's a, a, my daughter's a self-proclaimed Swifty, so I've been subjected to listening to a lot of songs and had a bit of an education over the last couple of months. And there's one song, actually, The Man, which had some lyrics which I thought were quite interesting. And she says, I'm so sick of running as fast as I can, wondering if I'd get there faster if I was a man. Now, what she's talking about here is a very real issue of gender inequality in the workplace and how women often have to work much harder to prove themselves to get the recognition they deserve compared to a man. But what I thought was quite interesting was kind of an unstated assumption in this, in this line, which is, where is there? How do you know when you get there? And the fact is, there is usually defined in relative terms. There is often something that is better than the people around you. And you know, there was a Harvard study done where people were given a choice. They said, would you rather have $50,000, but everyone else around you, or would you rather earn $50,000 while everyone around you earns 25, or would you rather earn $100,000 but everyone around you gets $200,000. And many people chose the smaller amount because it meant they would be better than the people around them. But if you think like that, then you can never stop running because once you stop, people will catch up to you and even pass you. And so you'll be running forever. In my experience, 
I feel like this is something we need to be really careful about examining ourselves on because it can really be deceptive how much significance we really place on what we do and, and what we have. You know, I've been a Christian for most of my life. I have known, I have taught about how we must put our identity in Christ for many years now. And I honestly felt like I was doing just fine, you know. But there was a point at which things started to go quite badly in my work a couple of years ago. And I was far more shattered than I ever thought I would be. But this was God's grace in my life because it wasn't until things actually went bad that I actually realized how much of my worth and significance was in that and what people thought of me and how well I did that. I needed God to help me deal with that. And, and my, my urge to you is don't wait for something bad to happen to realize that, but let God convict you and speak to you now. But does that mean we shouldn't care about things like work or career at all? Well, no, absolutely not. We are called to be faithful and a light wherever we are. In fact, putting my significance in Christ actually helps me do my work. Because as a portfolio manager, when my positions are doing badly, I no longer need to be emotionally affected. But I can take decisions objectively for the good of the firm and for investors, rather than panic about what's going to happen to me. This is something that can be a strength, not a weakness. But more importantly, Jesus says that there is a there that is better than any of these insecure temporal positions that we strive to maintain. Not only do we get brothers, sisters, mothers, fields, and, and, and all of that, but in the age to come, eternal life. Now, he doesn't say nothing bad is ever going to happen. He says there are persecutions, right? And which is something that I experienced in some form. But he says we can look through that because this eternal, and because there is something better. And this eternal life is not just some kind of continued existence in our current form, but it is life more full in complete, unhindered communion with Him. And we will not need to battle or earn significance because we will be with the one who is most significant of all, worthy of all honor and glory and power. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it says the elders even throw their crowns that they've earned at His feet we will have not just life, but life eternal in the most significant and fullest way possible because of him. So I'd like to close with a challenge on two things. First, I'd like to encourage us to turn our eyes to him and see the beauty, wonder, and lavishness of what is, <coughs> sorry, of what is ours in Christ. There is no amount of wealth you can gain in this world that will beat the eternal security, satisfaction, and significance, and most importantly, salvation we have in Christ. And this reminded me once of when my daughter, Ali, asked me, if heaven is so much better, what's the point of staying here? And I explained to her that God has made and put us all here for a purpose, and when it's time to go, we will go, but right now, we should be faithful to who and what God has called us to. But there is something about her childlike faith that we can learn and be challenged by. In fact, the Gospels seem to deliberately make this contrast between children and the rich young ruler because in all three synoptic Gospels, right before this incident is the one where the people are bringing children to, God, to, to Jesus. The disciples try and stop them, but Jesus, Jesus says, no, let the little children come. And then he says, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, not to the rich, not to the powerful, not even to the religious. 
but to enter the kingdom of God, one has to receive it like a child. Why was it so easy for Ali to say that? It's because she has not yet built any of her self-worth in her possessions or achievements or in the, in the world. She has no bank account or great possessions. And the challenge I'd like to put to us right now is which one are we more like? The rich young ruler who finds it difficult to get in or the child who will receive the kingdom? Second, this condition of our heart is best tested by the practical reality of how we give. Having served as treasurer here for many years, I can tell you that financially, we're in decent shape, and this sermon is not because we suddenly have a need and we need you to give money for it. More important is really how important this is for our hearts in testing where our treasure truly lies. As a church, we want to set an example for this, and we set aside 11% of all giving to missions and 4% for benevolence. So we need to budget to meet all our expenses with 85% of the giving that we get and believe that it will be enough. To be honest, there have been some years where I weren't sure we were going to make it. And I sometimes wondered if 15% was really a lot to give and we were being too hard on ourselves. But God always provided. And we have always had a surplus in spite of that. So how much should you give to and to who? Well, that's something you need to pray to God about. But I remember Simon saying something once that had an impact on me, which was, God gives us seed both for bread and for sowing. There is a part for us to eat. There is a part for us to sow. There is a part, and, and this sowing, not just to the church, but also to those in need in the community around us. But at a minimum, we should be faithful with our tithes of 10%. And I just want to say that sometimes it's easier for us to think that we can give later when things are better and we're more secure and we have more money. But in my experience, it only got tougher the more money I earned. Because the more you earn, the more your tithe is, the more you think about what you could do with that tithe. And if you can't give when you have little, you will find it tougher to give when you have much. And so I'd really like to challenge you to pray about this and let God speak to you about it. Finally, let us always remember that when we give, it is not a loss. It is a response to the one who has given us all we have right now and will give us so much more. Let us remember the riches we have in Christ and where our true security, satisfaction, and significance lies. Let us pray. Lord, we just want to come before you, Lord. We bring our hearts before you. We pray that you would shine a light on the deepest parts of our hearts, the things we hold dear, the things we keep fences around, the things we keep that we have kept in our lives that we have not submitted to you, Lord. I pray challenge us. Challenge us to see that following you is not something that we can earn. It is something that we have been given. But help us to respond to that as a child. Help us to respond to that, giving all of us for all of you. In Jesus' name we pray. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.